0: Today on episode 87, I'm going to be talking to Will and Kristen Lambert. They were missionaries to Spain, and now they've edited and published a new book called The Mission. This is a reprint from a 1994 version, and we're going to find out today about their missionary experiences and the purpose for this new book on this episode of the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no-regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Will and Kristen, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
2: Great to be here.
0: Yeah, it's just great to great to talk to you. I started reading your book and and love it. I just, you know, anything regarding the mission, I go, that's awesome. Um We're going to talk more about that in this interview, but how'd you guys become Christians? If you could just share a little bit about your background, that'd be awesome.
1: Sure. Well, for me, my mother was reached out to by her sister. My family had just gone through a really hard time and we moved, my parents got divorced and we moved away from my father to Boston. And my mom started studying the Bible, became a disciple. I was eight years old and that's when I was introduced to the church. And I fell in love with God. I fell in love with seeing people who had real relationships, really loved each other, had joy in their lives, had peace in their lives, and um, started studying the Bible a few years later and got baptized when I was 15. But really, truly, it was it was through my aunt and just seeing people's lives be so inspiring at such a young age.
2: Yeah. And I, I was introduced uh, at a young age as well. I actually grew up in this movement of churches, the ICOC. My parents had both become Christians in college, started dating, got married. And uh, so growing up, I was at church, you know, every Sunday, every Wednesday. And when I started high school, uh, I really started realizing, okay, I have a lot of knowledge about the Bible and church and God, you know, I could probably answer most of the questions someone would ask me. But I started to realize i don't have a relationship with god at all i know about god but i don't know god and so i asked a couple of brothers in the church this was in nashville tennessee if they would study the bible with me and throughout my freshman year of high school studied the bible and uh, the end of that year may 22nd 2005 uh, i was baptized and it's coming up on 16 years now
0: that's amazing and how old how old were you at the time when you became a christian
2: 15, 15, yeah, so we, we were both 15 years old. Wow.
0: So Christian, you got baptized in Boston and well, you were baptized in Nashville, Tennessee. Okay. Correct. So how, how did your paths cross? You guys are two, from two different places.
1: So Will's little sister went to school where I went to school. I was a senior while she was a freshman. And one fateful weekend, he came to visit and took me out on a date. And it's basically mm-hmm. history from there.
2: <laughs> That's right. That, yeah, that was senior year of college. So by this point, I was living in Baltimore, going to school. And like Kristen said, my sister ends up going to Boston for college, same university as Kristen. And my sister set us up on a date one weekend when I was visiting her. She
1: gets the credit. And
2: she does. Uh, we started dating a few months later. And yeah, and here we are, uh, seven years of marriage into it. And we started dating nine years ago, a little over nine years ago. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So, any advice for those people that are, are waiting for. Mr. Wright or Miss Wright to to walk into their paths. Any any encouragement you might give to those who are going, man, I'd really like to meet the right person.
1: Yes, Rob. I'm so glad you asked. My advice, and I think this is so important for probably anything in life, but especially if you're wanting to have a mate, is to work on you first. And work on your character. Work on your your relationship with God. Be as mature, as complete as you can be. Be as uh, whole as a person as you can be. Because if you're not who you really want to be and who God really wants you to be, I don't believe that you can have the relationship that you're craving. Mm-hmm. So, and maybe you wouldn't attract the people that you really want to be with anyhow.
2: Yeah. And I I agree with all of that. And, And I would say too, I think sometimes there can be this thought in our minds that marriage is the goal, right? That you kind of follow this particular path. If you're converted when you're young and you're single, okay, well, I have to get married. I have to have kids. That's kind of the plan in the church. And I think it's important to remember that actually, whether we're single or married, we're able to glorify God 100%. And, and live incredible lives as disciples. And so it is not God's will for every single person to get married, right? And I think it's important to remember that uh, a life as a single can be incredible and so glorifying to God. Uh, and then I would say for those who are seeking to date or currently dating, just be really open to advice and input. I know it's hard early on in the relationship. You want to do things your way. You want to kind of chart your own path. But I think that if we resist advice during the dating stage, well, when you end up getting married and having kids, the very people you resisted advice from are the ones you're going to be running to saying, please help me. I don't know what's going on. And you want to have those relationships already in place in the dating relationship. So that, that's always helpful to keep in mind too.
0: That's That's great advice. Uh Now, you guys, did you know at the time that you wanted to go on the mission field, you guys went to Spain, like what inspired you to go there?
2: Sure. You can go first. Get that pattern. Yeah.
1: Yeah, um, I think we both uh, had foreign missions on our hearts for a very long time. Um, I have a funny story. So I was 13 years old and I was on like a uh, our youth and family field trip in the boss with the Boston teen ministry. And, um, and we went to Georges Island and I was meeting other teens and I met someone named Tom McGurk and he was telling me how he was born in Paris because his parents were missionaries. And for some reason, I already knew I wanted to be a disciple. I wasn't, I was studying the Bible at that point. Um, I wasn't yet, uh, you know, baptized believer, but, um, something clicked And I said, oh yeah, that's what I wanna do. I wanna be a missionary. And I think growing up in the oldest region of our movement um, in Boston, I just saw people coming in and going out and all the ways that they changed lives and all the Mm. tears that were shed, um, sad that they were going, grateful for them having gone, coming back. And I just saw, wow, they are really making an impact and changing the world. And I wanna do the same thing.
0: let let me just ask let me just kind of drill down a little bit on that Kristen occasionally I run into disciples similar to your background raised in the church and yet the mission is just about the farthest thing on their mind in fact they're running from the ministry very cynical look at the habits and customs of, of our family of churches and can identify them but in a very cynical way and Um, how did you avoid that? I mean, what's, you obviously have a very idealistic view of the mission or else you wouldn't go on the mission field. What, what what was different about your, your attitude?
1: I think because of my background, um, I had a lot of trauma in my early childhood and drug abuse, alcohol abuse, um, violence sometimes, but lots and lots of trauma. And having seen what God can do in someone's life and the way that having a true relationship with him can change your life. For me, I think just it was so clear that that's really what we all need and everyone's story is different, but, but everyone needs God. Everyone needs a relationship with him and, and Jesus can change anybody. And so I think knowing that there is a higher purpose even if you can't see it and it's not tangible, but that you're really making an impact, not just on one person's life, but perhaps on their whole family and and on history.
0: Right. Right. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. The the question is what inspired you to go to Spain?
2: Sure. I'll, uh, well, I can share for me. And I I think for, for both of us was very similar. Um, As far as wanting to be a missionary and then specifically wanting to go to Spain, I was born on the mission field. So my my parents went on the mission team from Boston to Argentina, to Buenos Aires. So I was born there. And from there, we lived in Mexico for a few years and and came back to the U.S. So there was always a part of me, uh, even before I became a Christian, where one, I, I felt very connected to the Spanish speaking world. Having been born in Argentina, having lived in Mexico, I didn't speak the language because I I lost it when we moved to the US, but I, I felt that connection. And then I became a Christian, and I started learning just through different friendships, and and kind of as I grew in my awareness of our, our churches, I started realizing how great the need was in Europe specifically, that you have cities of millions of people where we have just very small churches or no church, and uh, you know the, the kind of the largest religion right now would be. Atheism or I would actually say it's more apathy. I think apathy is just the it's the largest religion of Europe That's the largest belief system. Just kind of I don't really care. I don't want to really know anything change anything And so I started to have this dream for for Europe to go to Europe one day And it was kind of a a funny thing how I I felt the connection to the spanish-speaking world And then I started having this desire to go to Europe And so what was the intersection of those two desires? It was Spain. And that was always kind of on my heart in the back of my mind. And when Kristen and I had our first date, uh, it was just crazy as we were getting to know each other and started realizing we both loved the Spanish culture and we both had this desire to go and help in Europe. This is, you know, our first conversation that we ever had with each other. And, uh, and so we did, we, we prayed uh, constantly from the time we were dating. And then once we got married, especially that, that if God would want us to go on the mission field, that he would open that door and make it clear at the right time. And and he did that with Spain, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about in a minute.
0: Okay. Tell me how, how did God make it clear?
2: Well, uh, the, the short version of the story is, uh, the Madrid church was looking to get really kind of reconnected with our fellowship of churches, with the movement, and, and even with Boston. And so they they started building a connection with Boston and decided, you know, we would like someone to come and lead the church. And actually the couple that first went in 2014 were my campus ministers in Baltimore, Cash and Maria McHarg. They went to Boston to train and then moved to, to Madrid to lead the church. And about a year and a half after they got there, they had to come back for some pretty serious health uh, challenges that were going on. And so they came back and for a while, for about six, seven months, the church did not have a leader, the church in Madrid, and they're figuring out what was going to be the next step. And We were planning with a group of six other ministry interns a trip to go visit the Madrid Church. This is May of 2016, and it was going to be a two-week trip to encourage the disciples, share our faith on campus, and just do whatever we could to to build their faith and and love up on them. And two weeks before this trip— our church leaders, we, we were in New Haven, Connecticut at the time. Our church leaders were Jeff and Florence Sackinger.
1: They're amazing. They,
2: they, they're incredible. They uh, they sat down with us and said, hey, what would you think about interviewing to lead the Madrid church? So this is two weeks before we're getting on a flight to Madrid. And uh, we were floored. Uh, Kristen kind of had a sense it was coming. I, I don't know how she, she has you, this ability.
1: The Holy Spirit. I was washing my hands in the bathroom and I thought to myself, I wonder if today they're going to ask us to go to Europe.
2: Huh? Yeah, and that, that's very true. She just had this, uh, has kind of these senses to know what's, what's going on. But what we did from that conversation is we started writing down Prayers for God to make it clear. We ended up writing down twenty prayers for clarity. We wrote them down in a journal, and uh, and we decided to write them down, pen to paper, because once you write it down, you can't change it, right? You can't modify and say, oh well, this what I really meant was, or oh maybe I can. We knew if we write these down, then we're putting this before God, asking Him to make it clear. Uh, prayers about the church not being concerned about our age. We were twenty six years old when we went to interview. Uh, that the church would be unanimous and totally unified in the decision for us to come, that we would be able to learn the language quickly, that that our church in Connecticut could hire our replacements before we left, all these prayers. And we just saw over the, the coming months how God answered them one by one and just kind of knocked down every domino. And so we had that initial interview May of 2016, we came back and lived in Spain for two months from October to December to study the language, kind of full-time students learning Spanish and just building relationships with the church. And from there, we, we just came back to the U.S. to get our paperwork in order and moved permanently in February 2017. So it was how did God make it clear? He answered all of these specific prayers in such a way that it was undeniable where we felt like man god has made this so clear if we don't go to madrid we're just flat out saying no to god's will
0: so can you explain like what what's unique about the spanish mission field you've you mentioned something that 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 apathy reigns but what else makes makes up that field unique i, I know that spain has such a, a rich heritage i mean they they were dominant for like half a millennium, and it's absolutely dominant culture for 500 years. Um, But what's unique about the mission field itself?
2: You know, I think Spain is, it's in an interesting place right now, because from the 1930s to the 1970s, they were under a military dictatorship with, with Franco. And uh, he reinstituted the monarchy and he reinstituted Catholicism as, as sort of the official state religion. So for those 40 years, it was actually essentially a legal requirement to be Catholic. Mm-hmm. And people that resisted him were either imprisoned or killed or exiled or they just fled you know, before anything else could happen to them. And so he passed away in 1976 and Spain kind of went back to being a Republic. Right. And there was a strong reaction to 40 years of sort of this tyranny and forced religious adherence. Mm-hmm. And the reaction was to run as fast as you could the other way. So, okay, now we're free. We can do what we want. We can do our own thing. So you had this whole generation growing up in the seventies and eighties children, right. Who now, kind of free to do what they pleased right we can choose our belief system choose our religion and so as those people grew up and started having kids in the late 80s 90s you know mid late 90s those kids who are now college students or young adults in spain had no exposure to christianity Uh, You know, at most, maybe they went to a Catholic mass a couple times as young children. And you do you have a few uh, who a few young people who are very devout in their faith, very serious about their faith. You will find people like that. But for the most part, I think Spaniards under 40 or 45 years old. It's very rare to find a Spaniard born, you know, let's say 1980 and and beyond that has a solid faith in God has ever opened the Bible or even really learned about Jesus. And so what's unique is as we would just go and share our faith on campus or just around Madrid, the, the concept of just the existence of God, the concept of Jesus as a historical figure, of opening the Bible and actually reading this ancient book, it, it was a totally foreign concept. Wow. And, uh, and so we, we quickly realized as we go around and share our faith, it doesn't work to simply invite people to church Mm -hmm. or simply invite people to a Bible discussion. The answer
1: will be no 99% of the time.
2: Right. Because they, when they hear the word church, they just think the Catholic church. And when they think the Catholic church, they think about 40 years of oppression. And, uh, and there's an immediate kind of visceral reaction against that. So we would have to just have general conversations. Hey, what, what do you think is the purpose of life? That was one of my favorite just opening questions or asking people, what do you think about the possible existence of God or of a higher being? Is it possible? Impossible could be. And we would just start talking and that's how we would build relationships with people. We'd say, Hey, let, let's get coffee and keep talking about this. Or, Hey, we're doing something at my house this Friday. We can, you know, we can keep this conversation going. And so we were starting maybe a few steps back from where you would typically be in the United States or or maybe a place that has a more kind of active church presence. And it was much more conversation, relationship spending time and, you know, reaching out specifically to campus students. Uh, I would typically go several months of building the relationship before ever opening the Bible together. And, uh, and so I just, I think something unique is it, it tends to take a little bit longer to really get someone to start believing
0: it 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 reminds me of the time of Joshua where you know it says once that generation died out a new generation raised up and who knew nothing about god it's it just interests, it just strikes me like wow you can like completely lose track of god in the space of 20 30 40 years gone must it must have been blow away for you guys to experience that
1: mm-hmm. yeah i think even more so just how it's funny how relationally oriented they are. Mm -hmm. And I know certain cultures are more like that than others, but I do think even without that religious influence in their lives and and many people believe in God, but don't practice their religion or go just to um, for the communion or uh, different special occasions to the church, but But they really um, value relationships, which I think, you know, is something that sometimes in the United States we can miss. And so it's interesting even to see how you can find pieces of God in different cultures, different aspects of his character, even though perhaps he's not fully accepted or or desired. Mm. But... But that was an interesting thing for us. The, the visceral reaction, I think, was very um, off-putting for us. At first, it was surprising. right? And, and then we got used to it and realized we just don't say the word church. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. but, but really realizing, well, people want love. They want relationships. And that's really important to anybody. But it was a little bit more obvious in that culture.
0: Any other adjustments that you had to make?
2: Well, yeah, I would say just just culturally, um, when you go to someone's house for a meal in Spain, <laughs> that is your whole day. Yes. I mean, that's, it's, it's four hours oh, absolutely. M- minimum, right? So it's not kind of a you pop in for lunch for an hour and then you both go your separate ways. It's a whole event. And
1: uh, it's called sobremesa. Yes. And so you go. You help each other finish the food. You sit down and eat. You have some dessert. You get some coffee, and you just sit at the table and talk. That's mm-hmm. it's. You're just chilling. That's what you do.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think too, what Kristen was saying about relationships. You know, we we have the the common phrase of uh, people don't know people don't care how much you know, right? Until they know how much you care. And I would say in Spain, that's true times 50. Mm -hmm. Uh, People really are not necessarily interested in being preached at or taught by you or persuaded by you until you have that trust. I think trust is, is, in my opinion, so much more valued in Spain even than in the U.S. You have to establish trust. And even in business negotiations, you may offer someone a great deal that actually helps their business, helps them financially. But if there's not trust, they're not going to take it. Even if the numbers look good, wow. you have to have a relationship. And so that that was actually, uh, that was an adjustment for us, but I think it was such a great lesson learned for, for me, I think for both of us to just realize it, it is all about relationships, even reaching out to someone and ha- persevering, praying for them, having patience, and not just saying okay well if this person doesn't want to read the bible by next wednesday you know i'm moving on it's well no we're in the process here this is just part of the journey and we got to keep going so those were those were big adjustments
1: yeah. one more adjustment that was really big not necessarily spiritual or religious is that people just live on the street like life yeah. happens outside. Absolutely. Usually on a terraza, on the sidewalk, outside of a restaurant. Like, you don't go to each other's houses to spend time together. Mm-hmm. You go to a restaurant, you go to the park, El Retiro, which is Oh, I miss it so much. It's just the most beautiful park. Um, but but life is outside. And as an American and as a natural homebody, <laughs> I was like, oh man, this is challenging. <laughs> like, I really and people don't want to come to your house. They they really won't come inside your home unless you're already great friends or invite right. you to theirs. Yeah. You'll go to a bar. Your bar is in. Get a coffee. Not you know. Right. Um. But but yeah, the life the life is on the streets. Wow, that's right.
0: That's amazing. What, any special memories that you you brought back with you?
2: Yeah, I, I can share one. And, um, this is a special memory for me, but it's also, I think it's just an inspiring, an inspiring story. So, uh, the story, the memory is about a year and a half ago when we were there. So this was the fall of 2019 as a church, we had started having monthly Bring Your Neighbor Days. So the last Sunday of every month, we'd do a special service. It was a shortened service, and we would have coffee and tea beforehand, and then we would always have food afterwards. And uh, and Spaniards love food, so that was actually a great way to just bring friends to church and say we're going to have church, and then we'll have food after, and just kind of talk and spend time. And uh, this one particular Bring Your Neighbor Day, we would always print out a ton of invitations, hundreds of invitations, give them to the disciples to go and share their faith. And this one particular Sunday, the theme was what happens when we die, right? And we we actually printed that on the flyer. That was the question for this sermon. And one brother in our singles ministry, he is 73 years old, single. He's never been married. He was one of the first converts in Spain. His name is Antonio. He would always take the biggest stack of (laughs) invitations and go all around where we met for church and just invite anybody he would see. And so this one day he, he passed out an invitation to somebody and this person took the invitation and just left it on a park bench. You know, they, they were not interested. They just left it there. Later that day, uh, there was a guy walking down the street named Juan Antonio, not to be confused with Antonio, the disciple. He was walking past this park bench. He looked down, and he saw the invitation, and he recognized the name of the church as the same church he had been invited to 15 years before. 15 years prior to that, he came a couple times, did a couple Bible studies, and just wasn't ready at that time. But you fast forward 15 years, it's now 2019, he sees this, he recognizes the church, and he decides to come that Sunday. So he comes to the Bring Your Neighbor Day, he immediately starts studying the Bible, and six weeks later, Juan Antonio was baptized. Yeah. Uh, he is, you know, a Spaniard through and through, born and raised in Madrid. And, and just an amazing example, I think about, uh, you know, Mark 4 and the parable of the growing seed where we plant it and, uh, and then we water it and we go to sleep. And day and night it grows, even though we don't know how. And then at the right time, the harvest is ready. And, and in his case, it was 15 years from the time the seed was planted to the time that he was ready. And that that's just such a special memory for me that I will always hold on to. That's
0: awesome. That's awesome.
1: For me, I think, um, one, our son was born there Mm -hmm. and that was very, uh, very special, very cool to experience pregnancy and giving birth in Spain. And, uh, and then also, Really any and every conversation that I was able to have with a brother or sister of ours there that where I could see their heart, where they felt free enough to let out some pain they were feeling or something heavy they were carrying, or they felt really encouraged by something we were able to do or influence in their lives. I think going to a church that had suffered so much and gone so long uh, in less than ideal circumstances to be able to have moments of vulnerability with each other and moments where we could really hold their arms up. Mm. I, I think for me, that is something that I will always cherish having had the opportunity to serve them and to love them in that way. Wow.
0: Now, now that you look back what what were you not prepared for when you went on that mission
1: mm. Cult- no. cultural, cultural faux pas yes <laughs> hurting people's feelings without even knowing it because of <laughs> culture i was not prepared for that <laughs> yeah
2: absolutely no that there there's some hilarious stories there and then uh, obviously just language mishaps as we're learning a new language and saying the wrong words and saying stuff that doesn't make any sense and uh, j- just laughing at ourselves <laughs> along the way. You have to, right? You have to be able to laugh at yourself. Um, I-, I think something, something that I wasn't prepared for is how lonely the mission field can be. Yeah. And, you know, in our case, we went by ourselves. It was an established church. But when we moved, we didn't go with a team. It was just the two of us that went. And I think um, that's something I was not prepared for. You know, Spain is on a peninsula. It's the Iberian Peninsula. It's right now the only church we have in Portugal or Spain. We have a small group in Barcelona who's kind of connected. But we really felt that while we are out here on this peninsula, we can't hop in a car. And drive and go visit disciples somewhere else Mm -hmm. you know we we can't just go up the street and and go visit our friends over here and that was challenging i i i think intellectually i kind of knew yes the mission field is lonely but i don't know if i was prepared for just the reality of it it's a
1: different type of lonely right
0: right pressure's on you you're the focus of trying to help a church to grow. How big was it when you, the church out there, when you went initially?
2: When we arrived, there were 40 disciples in Madrid and a group of five in Barcelona. So 45 disciples in Spain.
0: Okay, boy. That's a, that's a, a, a challenging situation. And how long had the church been there before you guys arrived in 2017?
2: It had been there at that point for 24 years. It was planted in 1993.
0: Okay, so it's loaded with a lot of faithful people that had been there for years and not a a lot of growth over that time. Maybe some initial growth, but then it it had declined. Okay, must have been challenging. Why'd you come back?
2: That's a good question. Uh, I can share first here. So I think the most maybe clear concise way to share it is we we got there totally ready to serve ready to give ready to live as missionaries make disciples help the church move forward and we knew coming in that the church had been through several years of kind of just challenges difficulties even two divisions in the six years leading up to when we got there and so we knew, okay, initially, we're going to need to just spend a lot of time together with people, building trust, building relationships. And, and so we really didn't make changes or, or preach anything, you know, radically um, demanding or, or calling people higher for a while, just as we were building those relationships. And and over the course of those four years, we, got, we saw God do amazing things. Uh, When we left last year, there were 65 disciples in Spain. So it grew from 45 to 65. Many Christians were made. People came back to the church. A lot of disciples who were just kind of discouraged and struggling started to get their faith back, felt ready to serve and give and lead again. But I think for us personally, it really, it just took a toll on us. I think being out there on our own. Uh, and not having hands on support for, I mean, just, just personally in our own faith, but then also for our marriage and then our family after our son was born. And we got to a point last year, and I should say this too, this is a significant factor. Towards the end of 2019, my mom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and she is surviving uh, miraculously. She's kind of she's beating the odds. She's actually been in remission for over a year now. Um, but that that was a significant, that took a toll on me emotionally, just being so far away, as my mom is diagnosed with, you know, this pretty severe type of cancer. Um, most people with pancreatic, they don't have a lot of time after the diagnosis. So that, that took a toll. And then I think last year during COVID, Um, God actually did some amazing things in the church. It was was one of the best years of growth that the Madrid church had had in a while. Uh, But it gave us time and space to really reflect on where we were at personally and where we were at in our marriage with our family. And I think we, we came to the point where we realized we've given the Madrid church everything we can. Coming in young, coming in as missionaries, helping the church get its faith back and and focus on the mission again and making disciples. But we've, we've now given all we can. There's not really much more we can give. And, and the tank was empty for us. I think as, as we were giving, there wasn't a lot kind of coming back in and, and, you know, there's part of that that was on us personally. And I think realizing, uh, just habits that we could have developed earlier to refill the tank. And I think another part of it was just the circumstances that we were in, just the situation that we were kind of in the middle of. And, um, and so started to realize that for us personally, if we don't make a change soon, we could get to a bad spot just in our own faith and our walks with God and our marriage and family as we're kind of, Getting feeling like we're getting run into the ground a little bit. And we really didn't want to leave. I think that that's important to say. Our first step was what can we do so we can stay here? Can somebody else come and help us for a little bit? Could we have a small mission team of six, eight, 10, 15 disciples come and just bring some of that fresh faith and fresh encouragement And even as we're having those conversations with the the European mission society and and different people, we realized throughout those conversations that actually what Kristen and I need is not just to tweak the settings here. I think we really need to make a significant change and it's time to come back. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just with kind of my, my mom's health that taking a toll really feeling like we needed hands on support and training and discipling for, for our personal lives. And again, our marriage and family, um, and seeing too that the Madrid church was at a place where the leadership team had been built up over those four years. Uh, really the strength of the church was in the family groups and the small groups and that they were at a place where they could keep it going they could move things forward and there you know there are different plans in the works long term for madrid but we felt confident that the disciples and specifically the leadership team they're at the place now where they can carry the torch and we're at the place where we need to come back because we're we're about to hit a wall here and that a wall that could do significant damage to us and even to the church to see their leaders kind of hit this wall and, and, potentially crash. So, so we realized we needed to make a change pretty soon to, um, to get the help that we needed
0: to grow from 45 to 65 in four years. That's 50% growth. That's pretty impressive. That's amazing growth. It must've been tough for you to leave. It must've been a real agonizing decision to make after things had gone so well um, to, to try to get a church growing that has not been growing for a while. That's, that's one of the most difficult jobs there is. Um, how, how did you guys select to San Antonio? How, why'd you, why'd you go to Texas? Why didn't you go back to somewhere else?
2: Yeah, that, that's a great question. This is another example of just God really guiding our steps because when we, we decided last September that it was time to move back to the U.S. without having any idea of where we would go, you know, it's not like we had a great job offer waiting and said, hey, we're going to jump and take this job offer. We just knew we need to come back and God is going to guide us wherever he puts us, it's going to be the right place. And so we were, we were talking and interviewing with a few churches around the U.S., um churches that were connected to the the european mission society in that mission field that was our initial desire was to keep that connection with europe it, being in kind of the same family of churches and uh, san antonio came up because we, we have a couple really great friends here who are on staff in the church one is uh, nick Ziegler. He, he and his wife wrote a chapter in the book they lead the campus and uh kind of all the youth here in the church and then one of Kristen's great friends is Amber Rodriguez, she and her husband lead a region of the church. And so we actually reached out to them personally and said, hey, we're, we're going to be moving back to the U.S. at the end of the year. And we're kind of just looking around for where we're going to end up. And do you guys know of anything in Texas, just in general, right, kind of anywhere in Texas? And uh, you, you want to talk about that?
1: Well, we were asking about a specific opportunity, asking, what do you know about this? So on and That's so forth. Right. Yeah. And, um, and Amber on the DL was like, hey, actually, in a couple of months, we might have some positions opening here. And I was like, okay, cool. You know, not giving it a second thought. But then a couple of weeks later, uh, God just really put it on our hearts, put it on our minds, close that other door. And Mm -hmm. I think we ultimately felt like San Antonio was the place we needed to be where we felt nudged. And we felt like this is where we were coming back to, to heal, to regroup, get more strength, um, strengthen our faith. And so we felt like this, this checks all the boxes. It it seems like an yeah. inspiring church. We've only heard amazing things. Um, it would be mm-hmm. really cool to be with other missionaries who are on staff, who are and even not on staff. A lot of people who have been missionaries are in this church, and um, and so ultimately, I think it just was the uh, all, all of our options were really incredible options, but yeah. it was the one that we feel like God made clear. This is really what we need for
0: right now. Right, right. Yeah. How did you, you, you mentioned that that last year during COVID, it was a very fruitful time for you. What, what were you doing? Why is that?
2: That that's, well, I think the simple answer is God yeah. <laughs> just bringing people to us, right. honestly. Um, I, I will say, I think something that happened last year during COVID that was pretty incredible was because we overnight were not able to meet together as a church our last church service was march 8th of 2020. spain went into a total lockdown at that point and so we had to really rely on the family group leaders in a way that we never had before where we said hey look we can't all get together on Sunday anymore we cannot all get together for midweeks anymore uh, Kristen and I can't even go around and travel and visit people we, we actually we were all restricted to within one kilometer of our homes you could not pass that barrier without paperwork showing you had to for for your job and so we were in constant contact with our Bible talk leaders just how is everybody doing just that you know, has anyone lost their job this week? Does anyone need groceries this week? Uh, Where are people at? Who needs encouragement? And they really stepped up and uh, and took charge of their groups in a pretty inspiring way. I think that was a huge thing. Just everyone taking ownership of we're going to make sure every soul is taken care of here. Last year in 2020, the Madrid church did not lose a single disciple. There was not one person who walked away. And that credit really goes to the family group leaders saying, we're going to take care of our people. We're going to love people, encourage people. And, and I think too, you know, when, when we all had to hit the pause button on life, people that we had been reaching out to for a while, all of a sudden got really urgent and realized physical health, is fragile, right? We can't just trust on our health and, hey, I'm going to have 20, 30, 40 more years of life. We don't know that. We're seeing people get hospitalized and even die uh, left and right here. Uh, Now I have time to think about my life. You know, I'm not spending all this time commuting to work, sitting in an office. I'm kind of at home thinking about what do I really want? And and then two, I think it freed up all the disciples to be able to study the Bible. With other people, because we just, you're at home already. Let's just get on a Zoom call and study the Bible with this friend who's been around for a while. And so uh, that was just, I think, a combination of factors and God really helping us see these various opportunities and how we could use this time, you know, the, the quarantine, the lockdown, not to just get inward focused and be discouraged, but to say, let's look at ways we can use this to bring people to God. And and the disciples did that.
0: That's inspiring. That's inspiring. Changing the subject. I've been reading your book, The Mission. It's a great book. What prompted you to compile it, edit it and put it together?
2: Yeah, I'm so excited to to talk about this because it it's it is actually a dream come true for me. And I don't say that just, you know, casually or as a cliche. I, I read the original book. It was published by, you know, Discipleship Publications International in 1994. And I read that book just as we were moving to Spain and going, getting ready to go on the foreign mission field for the first time. And I read it and was so inspired by the stories, by the testimonies written by people in the ministry and on the foreign mission field all over the world. And, and I felt like, you know, we, well, one, I was just inspired reading it. And shortly after reading it, I started thinking, we need to start telling some new stories. We need to start telling the stories of my generation. I am 30 years old. so I'm, I'm right in the middle of the millennial generation and we have inspiring stories. I mean, we've got peers all around the world who are doing incredible things, who are sacrificing, who are persevering, who are taking steps of faith, but we don't know them. We don't know about these stories. And, you know, for whatever reason, um, they're just not they're not getting told in the same way as maybe in the 90s. And so I started thinking, what if we did a new version of the mission written by millennials, written by missionaries and ministers all over the world? telling these new stories of faith. And I sat on that idea for, gosh, almost three years. And at the end of 2019, I felt like, you know what? It's been now 25 years since 1994, since that last book, let's do this. And I started reaching out first to a couple of friends, a couple of our peers who actually became some of the authors in the book, mm-hmm. and said, what do you guys think? Could we do this? Is this, would this work? Is this something that can be inspiring? And the res- immediate response was, this is incredible, let's do this. And uh, I talked, we talked to our disciples who are John and Carol McGurth, they are leading the parish church to talk to them because we knew, okay, this is going to be a time commitment and just let's get some advice. Let's talk through this. They felt great about it. And from there we reached out directly to IPI and kind of pitched the idea and said, look, this would be kind of a new edition of the mission book, same format, you know, about 30 chapters, different authors all around the world, talking about the mission and different aspects of that. What do you think? Do you like this idea? Would you like to do it? And uh, and they loved it too. So then, the work began, and uh, we actually first started contacting all the authors in October of 2019, and by February of 2020, all of the chapters were written. I mean, the all these authors, the 30 authors in the book, just were incredible in their willingness to sacrifice time to contribute to this project, mm-hmm. to take time to, to first kind of get the idea in their mind, write the chapter, get the chapter edited, rewrite it, revise it several times, and, uh, and then to organize the book. You know, it's it's another amazing thing. There was no, there was no format for the book initially. The, the published book now is broken into four chapters about, or four sections, I should say, about faith, vision, uh, perseverance and Sacrifice, and um, what am I missing? Faith, Vision, Perseverance, Sacrifice, and uh, oh my goodness. It's we, should pro- it <laughs> we should We should grab Rob has it right there. I'm blanking. Faith, Vision,
0: Perseverance and Sacrifice, and Conviction.
2: That's it. So we didn't have those four sections initially, and what we did is we, we just talked to all the authors and said, what do you want to write about? What's your story to tell? And so they came back and gave us kind of a two to three sentence synopsis of this is what I want to write. So we got all that content, all those ideas in and started to see a pattern. of Okay, we've got these these ideas, these chapters that have this in common, these chapters that are about sacrifice and perseverance. These are more about faith. These are about vision. This is about, you know, passionate conviction. And the book started to come together. And uh, and you know once we got all the all the actual content all the chapters, IPI really did a great job making sure the formatting was consistent. That there's a, a brief bio of every author you know in that chapter. They wrote a picture of them and their family. There are questions and scriptures at the end of each chapter, so it follows a devotional format. And the initial plan was for it to be published in time for the World Discipleship Summit. <laughs> July of 2020, we were going to have it printed, you know, out on the book table, ready to go. And, you know, we, we had the content ready in February. Well, of course, we know what happened in March. And so everything just got delayed for a long time. And the book just was released in January, uh, this past January. And uh, and it's out now, ready to, to be purchased. So that that's a little bit the story of the book. What
0: for a person who's interested in maybe writing, putting together a book? Any any surprises along the way? Anything that that you go, whoa, that was wasn't expecting that?
2: It's a lot of work. It's just a lot of hours, uh, emails, writing, revising, editing, trying to, especially you know in this this book where there's different authors contributing, trying to get everything to be kind of consistent and, uh, and down to the same format. And then I think for, for Kristen and me, as we were writing our own chapter in the book, it's, it's hard to boil your thoughts down to, you know, five or six pages to write a chapter because the story we tell about moving to Madrid and, and, going on the mission field, Uh, our chapter is called, if God says go, how can we say no? Mm -hmm. And it's all these answered prayers. It's one thing to talk about it. It's one thing to kind of tell the story, even like this in a podcast, but to sit down and write about it. And how do I actually communicate this in a clear way, in a way that makes sense where I I can't use my hands, there's no tone or facial expressions. It's really hard to try to transmit that same message in just written form. So those are some of the challenges that I wasn't quite expecting.
0: How did you select the authors, the contributors?
2: Sure, Um, there were two steps in that process. One was we have been able to participate in a lot of kind of international ministry opportunities. Uh, Even back in 2015 in Boston, Uh, we had this event called the Global Missions Corps. And it was a group of 25 or 30 young ministers from all over the world. I mean, spanning from Brazil to Papua New Guinea, to London, to Australia, to India. Um, And all of these missionaries came together and we spent two weeks together in Boston, just building friendships, building relationships. And so uh, a lot of the authors were actually part of that two week experience in 2015. So we contacted them personally, not all of them, but a few of them and said, hey, we're writing this book. Would you be willing to share your story? You know, we, we know you, we know your story, it's inspiring. Would you wanna share it? So a lot of them came back and, and said yes and, and wrote their chapters. And then we also reached out to the regional family chairs around the world uh, who kind of oversee all of our families of churches. We said look we're doing this book with ipi and we're looking for young ideally 35 and under ministers missionaries who have inspiring stories who do you recommend so we got all these recommendations back and we started contacting those people individually saying look this is what we're doing would you be willing to share your story and uh, and that's how all these authors came together from you know nigeria south africa india the philippines Papua New Guinea, London, uh, Argentina—you know, truly, truly, it, China even. I mean, international, and that—that uh, that was how we found the authors. Mm-hmm.
0: You've, you've put this whole book on on the mission. It, it's, in some ways, it makes you kind of an expert on the mission, in particular your age cohort—people in their thirties um, or twenties, thirties. What do you what do you see? as what's it going to take to reach this generation?
2: That's the million dollar question, right? How do we reach this generation? And even, I think even the one coming up after, because uh, current college students now, and certainly current teenagers now, it's, it's even a little bit of a different generation than the millennial generation. There's some different dynamics and challenges. But I think just in my experience of, Converting my peers, right? People my age, and and then, you know, friends that Kristen and I have all over the world and how they've been able to help so many millennials become Christians in their churches and ministries. I think that people are really looking for genuine relationships. They're looking for genuine connection. They want real friendships that go beyond uh, social media connections, that go beyond just friends that you have for a particular type of thing, right? Because in the world, you kind of have friends for different things, right? So you would have, gosh, your, your party friends or your drinking friends. Then you've got your sports friends. Then you've got your kind of your study friends at school. Then you've got, you know, pe- people that live in your neighborhood that are close by or people that you have some common interests with. But typically, none of those friendships get to the level of depth where you're burying your soul, where you're talking about your dating relationship or your marriage, or you're talking about dreams you have or things you're disappointed about in life. And we as disciples actually are amazing at building those types of friendships with people. And I think millennials are looking for that. They want friendships that go beyond shared hobbies or interests. Uh, They want that, that depth and that authenticity. And I think too, you know, we are in an age, kind of this postmodern age where truth is relative, right? You can define your own truth. You you have to live your own truth. Uh, Everyone has to find the truth for themselves. And what that implies is that there's not, there is no one truth. There is no absolute morality or right and wrong. And so I think that in some ways we have to reason with people a little bit and that, you know, that's not a new argument. Right. This goes back all the way to the Enlightenment. There's tons of writing about this over the last few hundred years. So I think there's part of it where we do have to reason with people to talk about, look, there there has to be an absolute truth and morality uh, and just philosophically that that you always reach that conclusion. And I think even psychologically, we see the, the results of living a life with no anchor no truth to kind of keep you grounded. And it's chaotic. It's disastrous. But I think too, you know, we as Christians are going to be looked at as intolerant and, and hateful and spiteful uh, because of stands we take on, on sexual morality and sexual ethics stands. We take on just scripture and the Bible and our culture And so we have to be uncompromising, right? We know that we're not going to compromise. We're not going to bend the scriptures to fit our current culture because 10 years from now, it's going to be something new, right? And we can't just bend the scriptures every decade to fit our, our culture. But at the same time, while we're uncompromising, people have to feel our love and our acceptance of them as people, right? We Look at any person we interact with, I don't, I don't reject you. I accept you 100%. But in order to be a Christian, these are the standards, right? This is what God says. Um, Those are a lot of things on my mind as far as how to reach this generation. But I think it's more than anything, authentic friendship and love, because that will never change. People are always looking for that and they always will be. And the millennial generation is no different.
1: And if I may, I 100% agree with what Will said. I think for me, that's exactly right. And uh, the the more authentic we can be in just our day-to-day lives, I think the more attractive the gospel will become in a world that's becoming less and less authentic.
2: Mm, And it makes
1: me think of two different things. It makes me think of this new uh, filter on Instagram where you can split your face. And on one side, you become this like super gorgeous supermodel. And on the other side, it's the normal camera. And the the Mm -hmm. supermodel side is totally, you know, whatever you want to call it, airbrush. It's, it's fake. It's not real, but that's what we're learning to be our new reality as everything is becoming more and more virtual And I think that the more that we can remember and hold fast to what is true and uh, in whatever arena, whether it's beauty or ethics or, you know, just anything, I think people will eventually realize, oh, this is this is who I want to be around. This is who I want to be because this is what really matters. Mm -hmm. And then it also makes me think of when people stopped coming to church and the motto became, well, if they're not coming to church, then we'll take church to them. And you went out to the street and you got on the soapbox and you, you know, street preached and everything. Well, now church is online. (laughs) People are online. And, uh, and so I think figuring out a way to, Just have a really strong presence while still upholding uh, the values that that God has passed down to us and his characteristics um, online, I think is super important because people are spending so much time and, and only more and more on their phones that that's how we're going to, and it's, it, it can feel a little like, Oh, this isn't authentic, but that's how, that's where people are mm-hmm. make a reel that's going to be attractive and have them keep clicking. Like that's what, uh, that this generation and the ones coming, that's how they communicate. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is kind of where, where we're heading in terms of reaching people
0: now you you wrote if god says go how can you say no if god calls you again to go to a foreign field are you guys willing to go back are you guys have to, have you talked about that at all
1: yes we are willing we would love yeah. that
2: and we are and that that actually was a big draw for us to come to san antonio specifically you know kristen talked about it but Uh, This church is known for training church builders, right? And and we still want to lead churches. We still want to plant churches. Mm -hmm. That's very much still our desire and dream. But we knew we were at this moment where we needed to come back and recalibrate and get that support, get that training, and kind of get back on our feet, honestly. But that's very much still the dream.
0: Okay, great. That's awesome. We need more people like you. Any advice, any words of wisdom for those who'd like to make this life count, whether it's going on a mission field, serving, doing anything where, uh, you're living a no regrets life.
1: Hmm. Make the Hmm. most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Mm
2: -hmm. Put
1: your phone down, go outside, talk to people, call people, spend time with people. I think, um, we have such joy and such beauty right in front of our faces, so many opportunities every single day, and we can miss it so easily. Mm. And then we look yeah. back and we have regrets. But if you want your, your life to be kind of the montage that you see in a movie of how beautiful and happy everything is, then you have to make the most of every opportunity you're given.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. And I would just add, you know, every single day, how many decisions do we make, right? There, there is some, someone has estimated it. I think it's in the thousands, right? From what type of shoes you're going to wear, when you're going to brush your teeth, what, how you're going to brew your coffee, right? We make thousands of decisions. And I think uh, as we all think about our lives, um, living based on fear and seeking comfort might feel like the safest way to live, Mm -hmm. right? That's the safest, that's the path of least resistance. And that may be true most of the time, but that's also the path of most regrets.
0: Mm.
2: I think the path of least resistance can, can, can be that. And, uh, so my encouragement to someone who really wants to make this life count and, and do something special with their lives is, live by faith and not by fear when you live by faith, you will never know what's on the other side of that door. You will never know what comes next. And that's really scary. It is terrifying, but it's an incredible way to build your relationship with God because you know, my life is in God's hands. I'm not taking care of myself anymore. I'm going to let God take care of me and guide me. And instead of seeking comfort, I think seek God's will and seek the interests of others. Be willing to make yourself uncomfortable so that you can really make an impact in other people's lives that always will feel uncomfortable. But if you want this life to count, that's the way to do it.
1: And I think below the surface of all of that, what it comes down to is breaking chains. It's, it's stopping the cycle. It's facing Mm. your fears, opening your baggage, going and sorting through it. I studied psychology, I love talking about emotions, I love crying, I think it's so healthy. And, yeah. and I, I see myself do it all the time, and I see so many other people do it, that we hinder ourselves, we self-sabotage, and a lot of it is because of trauma that we haven't worked through.
2: Mm. And
1: we're reliving the trauma, or um, we are just limiting what God really wants to do with us and not believing and that I love that my motto for a long time has been no fear, all faith. And, um, and I think that really on, on a deeper note, if anyone listening is, you know, pushing aside and avoiding that thing in your life, that is going to be so painful and take many months or many years to work through, you know what, brother, you know what, sister, it's worth it. It's so worth it. And I feel like that's what I've spent most of my adult life doing and it can be exhausting, but I am who I want to be and I'm becoming who I want to be because of working on these things. And I, I won't have those regrets. Because, uh, because I am breaking those chains. And, uh, I feel like through the Holy spirit, through the Bible, through the people that we have, uh in in our lives through um just everything that god has given us goodness even just going outside and being in nature like mm-hmm. we can do this we are so much more powerful than we think
0: <laughs> thank you so much for for joining me today it's, it's great to hear your story thank you for putting this book together on the mission it's so needed where can people find it if people wanted to get a copy of this and maybe read it with their ministry or or uh, get it into their hands, where do they Where do they buy it?
2: You can buy it right now on ipibooks.com. So that, that stands for Illumination Publishers International, ipibooks.com. Just go on the website and search the mission. It'll come right up, uh, the mission book, and uh, the subtitle is Go and Make Disciples of All Nations. You can order it, and it'll ship to you right away.
0: That's great. And if someone wanted to reach you, how would they do it?
2: The easiest way to reach me would be by email. Um, So I I can provide my email address here. It's wclambert517 at gmail.com. That's the best way to reach me.
0: Wclambert517 at
2: gmail.com. That's right.
0: Well, thank you so much, Kristen. Thank you so much for being here on the program. All the best to you in San Antonio. And I look forward to seeing you at some point in the future in a live setting.
2: Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having us on, Rob. This has been great.
0: And I want to thank you today for listening to the Rob Skinner podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, let me just ask you a favor. Hit the subscribe button and let your friends know about it and how to find it. Tell your church friends and please spread the word. Because my goal is to inspire you to make this life count, live a no regrets life and multiply disciples, leaders and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.